1: Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar on to discuss the Royals, the red hot Royals, and their four game winning streak. But first, we continue our preview of AL Central Division opponents. Today, even though they just played a series, uh, we will look at the Minnesota Twins with TJ Grisegner of Twinkie TJ, thanks for being on today. Yeah, no problem, Max. Well, the Twins are the reigning division champs, winning 101 games last year, but they did fall in the first round of the playoffs in a sweep to the Yankees. What did the team look to accomplish last offseason to get over the hump, and what did they end up doing?
0: So the biggest thing that I think every fan saw, and I assume the front office saw as a need, was pitching, um, especially with a couple of the the guys from the rotation not coming back. Um, The Twins needed to get more starters, better starters, and they started out by pursuing a couple of the big-name free agents. I don't know, you know, how in on the – conversation they really were but they were at least talking to Garrett Cole um, potentially a couple of the other guys that obviously ended up going other places um, and when that didn't happen the first move they made was to, uh, was to make a big pivot and go pick up even more offense as uh, potent as the offense was they went ahead and obviously signed Josh Donaldson um, but they did add a couple pitchers on as well um, so there's a couple names that are a little interesting and The way this season has turned out, you know, being uh, significantly shorter and starting later, actually kind of worked in favor of a couple of those, uh, should we say, uh, um, arms that maybe have a few more uh, surprises potentially available um, that are going to be in the Twins' rotation this year.
1: You know, you talk about the Twins being kind of aggressive going after free agents. You know, Carl Polat, who used to own the Twins, you know, pretty pretty strong reputation as being a a kind of a a tight-fisted owner didn't like to spend a lot of money on the team uh his son jim now owns a club it seems like he takes a much different approach to running the club
0: so one of the big things about uh well jim as well as the rest of the Polad family um is that they are a little more hands-off of an ownership group that's not to say obviously they don't have expectations and they don't hold people accountable but they really do let the front office run the uh run the team they've repeatedly made public uh statements more or less saying you know if they can make a good case to spend money we're going to spend money we're going to listen to our front office people and we're going to do what they say we need to do to become a winning ball club
1: well it seems like the twins have done a really good job uh working up to this point you know we they've produced quality players like Miguel Sano Eddie Rosario, Max Kepler, Jorge Polanco, Jorge, Jose Barrios. As recently as 2016, now the Twins they lost 103 games, um, and you know the Royals obviously have had some some uh, really tough years the last couple of years. So we'd like to know like wh- how do you get back to that point? So what for the Twins? What was really key for them getting going from kind of the the cellar, the as it were, to being a serious contender?
0: You know, there's a combination of factors, and a lot of it is the guys you mentioned um, kind of maturing and growing up together a little bit. Um, in 2016, of course, that was that uh, 103-loss ball club, one of, the, one of the worst seasons that I've uh, had to put up with, and I watched this team through, you know, the, the worst years of uh, the 90s. And Anyway, um, the big thing, 2017, they were that surprising wild card team with really the same core they have now. And that was kind of that hint of what was to come. Um, of course, 2018 was a little bit down, caused Paul Molitor's job. So we had a new coaching staff come in, which I do think the new coaching staff was a big part of it. I also think adding Nelson Cruz last year was an underrated addition in terms of, uh, you know, just helping some of the younger guys, especially Miguel Sano, um, who's you know um, kind of the guy that they brought him in to help. But really being a mentor, helping these guys understand what it means to be a professional ball player, how to prepare, how to stay healthy, those kind of things. Um, so I think the biggest factor is having that young core, which uh, from what I saw this weekend, I think the Royals are at that stage, you know, the 2016, maybe 2017 twin stage, where you've got the young core kind of starting to uh, get to know each other and play together. And it's going to be a couple years, but as they grow you know, into a group together, they become a really coherent ball club.
1: You mentioned the Twins changing managers uh, and hiring Rocco Baldelli. What's kind of been the the fan uh, impression of him so far? How has he run this team that's maybe a little bit differently, and and has he been a big part of the success?
0: So I think everybody's really kind of embraced Rocco. Um, Just overall, he's got a very – I mean, he's not necessarily the guy that you get a lot of sound bites off of, but he's got that kind of easygoing personality that it's easy to like. Um, more importantly, the staff he's put together, starting obviously, um, with him on the coaching side, as well as, uh, what the front office has put together on the scouting side is very, very kind of oriented towards the statistics, the modern analytics, those kind of things, um, where, you know, it's the, the new take on the, on baseball, the, uh, you know, um, kind of the metric view a little bit, but also using all the technology, using the, uh, you know the cameras and the weighted baseballs and all this, uh, all the different things they can do to track what guys are doing, what they can change, those sort of things.
1: Just looking at the lineup, you know, we know this—the the, the lineup was known as Bomba Squad last year. They set the record for home runs in a year with 307. What are we looking at as a projected starting lineup for the Twins here in 2020?
0: So the the scariest thing is they really didn't lose anybody. Um, obviously, they lost C.J. Crone and they lost uh, Jonathan uh, Scope who both ended up in Detroit. Um, but those, uh, two guys have been more than replaced in my opinion. Um, Josh Donaldson coming in will now start at third base. Um, moving Miguel Sano over to first, um, which more than replaces the production that Crone had, especially over the entire season as he was injured for, um, for a bit of that. He had a thumb issue that kind of nagged him and cut down his production. Um, in 2019, by the end of the season, um, Luis Arise had really kind of taken over at second base anyway um, and he kind of push, pushed Scope into being that um, secondary player a little bit, a little more of a role player um, Ariz now gets the um, chance to be the, the guy, the starter at second base and I think um, he brings something really different to the table than the rest of the team with his contact skills um, he's going to be the guy putting the ball in play making really smart at-bats um, and kind of setting the table for the, uh, for the bigger bats that are in the lineup. Um, other than those two guys, the Twins really returned the entire um, same squad they had last year, um, obviously in good health. Um, Byron Buxton is the other guy who um, missed a huge portion of last year um, but really could and should have a little bit of a breakout season this year. In a shorter season with an expanded roster, the Twins have been platooning him a lot more. Um, keeping him you know on the bench two out of every uh, five games or something about at that pace which keeps him a little healthier um, and that should be the other big addition that we see uh, this season in terms of the uh, lineup
1: you mentioned the pitching staff maybe being a little bit of a weakness last year um, what are the arms we're looking at in the starting rotation and maybe a few key bullpen arms and how do you how do you kind of feel about the staff going into the season
0: yeah, so I'm actually unreasonably excited about this pitching staff considering what it is. Um, and that sounds kind of odd, but um, the two uh, starting pitchers that the Twins returned from last season's rotation, of course, uh, Jose Barrios and uh, Jake Odorizzi is back on a qualifying offer. So he's uh, once again pitching in a contract season, um, but was really turning into something kind of special last year. Maybe not that. You know, typical ace, but at least kind of that one A guy that the Twins have needed. Um, of course, he got off to um, a little bit of a slow start this season. He strained his back, made his first uh, outing the other day against you guys. Um, only threw three pitches, wasn't exact. Or excuse me, three innings, not three pitches. Um, but wasn't exactly what we were hoping for. Um, but again, it was his first outing, and I think that in another two or three appearances, we'll start to see more of what we saw last year. Um, then Randy Dobnak, who is technically still a rookie, is returning in the rotation. He's off to a great start this year. He had a great start last year, and he's got an amazing story as well. Um, literally driving Uber in the off season all the way to the major leagues in one year, um, pitched against the Yankees in the playoffs. So he's a guy that I think... Um, well, we're going to see what we get. Obviously, if we hit that sophomore slump, the league figures him out, but they haven't yet. So he really could be a guy that um, is an asset to the Twins. And then the, uh, the other three newcomers um, that we're going to see in the rotation a little bit are going to be um, Rich Hill, uh, Kenta Maeda, and then Homer Bailey. Um, so two of the three came over as free agents during the offseason. Rich Hill, um, who obviously is injury-prone, um, and then Homer Bailey, who you guys know probably better than I do at this point, um, those two guys both I think have a huge benefit from the shorter season. Um, Hill obviously number one getting healthy, but number two um, being able to, if he ever gets back off the injured list, you know have a little more, um, well, a little less um, worry about the mileage on the arm over the course of the season. Um, and then Bailey, you know, he's kind, of a, he's kind of a wild card. You might get something good. You might not out of him, but whatever you get, I'm going to count it as a win. Um, and then the third guy, um, Kent Maeda, is really kind of an interesting addition for the Twins, not because of uh, what he brings as a pitcher, although, you know, really a solid third starter for the team. Um, but the big thing is kind of what he about, symbolizes about the front office. Um, which, you know, he was, that was supposed to be a part of the big uh, Mookie Betts trade. Um, obviously fell through when uh, when the Red Sox um, found something in the medicals for Gratterall that they didn't like. But um, the Twins front office kind of held their ground a little bit. Said, no, this is our guy. We want to get him. We don't want to give up anything more. Um, and really just kind of played with the big boys in a good way um, at the trade table, which is something we really haven't seen, honestly, since uh, probably the trade that brought um, Joe Nathan to the Twins back in the early, early part of uh, the 2000s.
1: You know, this is going to be a year where teams are going to have to be kind of creative in roster management. And we could see, with no minor league season, we could see like a lot of prospects come up through maybe wouldn't have ordinarily come up or, or even have bigger roles, especially with, with so much uncertainty about who's going to be available. Uh, who are some, some prospects that maybe didn't make the team initially that we could end up seeing uh, make an impact for the Twins this year?
0: So the two big names are the obvious two big names. Royce Lewis, Alex Kirillov. both of them are um, participating at the Twins alternate site in uh, St. Paul. So either one of them could conceivably be up in Minnesota at any time. Um, I don't know that we'll necessarily see those guys, partly due to uh, positional fit, partly due to the fact that if the Twins did want to have them up, I think they might have done it already. Um, Kiriloff, especially, since the outfield is rather uh, stacked with players. The Twins broke camp with a couple of uh, guys uh, in Lamont Wade Jr. and in um, with Austin Whitehair, um, literally a guy I'd never even heard of. But a couple of other outfielders over him, which suggests that maybe this is something more of a seasoning, keeping these guys playing with the Twins training staff and coaching staff around, um, sort of approach than, you know, them being a real viable guy to come up and be a contributor. Although I could be surprised by that. Um, the guys that will contribute this year that are more in the prospect pool or maybe half a tier down, um. Obviously, the rookies I've mentioned are going to be kind of a kind of a big one to watch. Um, another one is uh, Jorge Alcala, whos a, he's a reliever, um, throws you know 90-ish plus miles an hour. Um, he's already uh, been added to the bullpen for the twins. They've also got um, a couple other guys as far as um, you know that second second tier of pitchers that could come up um for starters the guys i would definitely watch would be uh lewis thorpe who has had a real really rough season obviously uh you guys saw last night with the uh, home runs but with that rough season he's having his velocity is down if he can figure that out um he could be again somebody that the twins look to as a member of the rotation in the very near future and then devin smelter kind of a classic crafty lefty another uh another rookie that's pitching out of the bullpen or in a spot start role right now um that could be a part of the future he's more of a probably fourth or fifth starter but could be one of those guys that hangs around in the majors for virtually forever just because he's a left-hander that can throw the ball 90 miles an hour and usually locate it
1: so the, the, i assume the fan expectations are pretty high for this club especially after the success they had last year but what what, in your opinion, has to go right for them to make a serious run at a, at a title this year?
0: So the biggest thing that has to go right is people have to stay healthy. Um, we're already seeing the, the uh, starting rotation get decimated um, by injuries, and it was it's a little bit of a kind of uh, bubblegum and baling twine sort of uh, rotation to begin with. So with uh, Bailey, Hill, and Odorizzi all out with injuries, um, that's been a big factor in – you know, the four-game losing streak we've seen has been the pitching just uh, not being there and not getting the links to protect the bullpen like, you know, you would hope for. Byron Buxton, I already mentioned, he's another guy who hasn't been able to stay healthy, um, as well as Miguel Sano. Both of those are guys the Twins are really, really counting on uh, this season, not only to be healthy, but to kind of prove that the last year or two, when they were healthy and they were playing, um, that they continue to grow and become you know better ball players um and again you know depth is big depth is a big thing especially this year and uh especially you know we dodged a real bullet after playing the Cardinals. um nobody on the twins managed to get hurt or excuse me get sick um even after the cardinals popped what was it nine or ten or sixteen or however many positive tests now so that was a real uh that was a real scary moment for twins fans just from the perspective of are we going to be able to play who's going to be able to play yeah i can't even imagine being a st louis fan or a miami fan right now and watching that and then of course you know the other side of just wanting your guys to be okay and not wanting to see anybody you know seriously sick or anything like that
1: well yeah i think that's kind of what's looming over everyone this year is just keeping these guys healthy and, and finishing the season uh, with some semblance of a of major league season this year. And we'll have to see how the twins do. I mean, they certainly have a loaded team and this looks like this could be their year if things go right. Uh, and it's certainly we'll, we'll keep our eye on it. And the, I, know, I know the Royals fans will get a, a lot of looks at the twins this year as a, what, when six of their schedule is made up of the Minnesota twins. So uh, if you want to keep up with the twins, you can always follow TJ's work and other news and analysis over at Town. Uh, TJ, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Max. We'll stay in touch and,
0: uh, you know, talk again soon. All right.
2: Most of the time we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know,
0: your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned.
2: I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator.
0: Right. <laughs> Pretty wild.
2: Listen to our Solo Acts series now in the VergeCast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.
1: And joining me now is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight?
3: Good, good. We're, uh man, it almost feels like we're halfway through the season. And you know, it, both, both it's actually kind of good timing because it's August and that's a little bit more than halfway through the season, but it just feels like also like, you know, we, in 60 games, every game is really precious. So yeah, I mean,
1: we're rolling along. Yeah, especially when you're like the Cardinals and you've only played like five games. Yeah. All year. Uh, yeah but yeah, they'll hit the one third mark for the season, I guess this week. So yeah, the season's kind of really moving along and, uh, here to also here to join uh, to talk about the season is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, do you feel like we've already played a third of the, the Major League Baseball season?
2: And it's – well, so so, what happens to me every year is that we get started in baseball and then like we blink and then all of a sudden like two weeks have gone by and we have like all this data and all these games that have been played. Uh, but the difference obviously is that previously it was just like, OK, yeah, all these games went by. We've still got way more to go. And now it's just like, wait a minute. We're almost 25 percent of the way. No, we are 25 percent of the way. We're almost 30 percent of the way through the season, which uh, I don't think we will be ready for it to end when it ends, but uh, it's it's certainly very weird.
1: Yeah, and the, I mean, it's it's been a weird season because like it really, I mean, we've seen it with the Royals like it's like one good week can kind of get you in into the you know, at least the talk about a playoff push and we've seen that with the Royals, I mean, they kind of were playing lousy for a while and then in the last couple of days, they get a four game winning streak over the weekend. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, I don't know You know, usually we say, like, the the playoff race doesn't start until Memorial Day, which is a third of the way into the season, and in this case, it's going to be, like, three weeks into the season, Uh, and I don't know, I don't don't know if I really feel like the Royals are in a playoff hunt, but I guess they they kind of are, just because everyone's in the playoff hunt. I guess we can kind of start there. Let's talk about the the, the offense a little bit. Um, You know, like I said, the Royals did struggle to score initially, but there were some underlying numbers that suggested they were hitting the ball hard and just being a little bit unlucky. And that luck kind of seemed to turn on them on Thursday when they clobbered the Cubs for 13 runs Uh, and going into Sunday's games, you know, their offense wasn't too bad. It was actually middle of the pack uh, seventh in the league in run scored per game, slightly above league average. Uh, Matthew, you wrote an article this week saying that the offense both is and isn't a problem. What exactly did you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, They've first of all, like you said, they've improved quite a bit in, in a short period of time. So they've gone from being like really bad to you know respectable. So so that's nice. Um, but what I meant was that what I meant by that was that um, the Royals have a lot of what I would call stopgap players. So if you if you think towards like the last time the Royals were rebuilding, like. When the Royals signed Mike Jacobs in 2009, or were playing with the Unieski Betancourt, or whatever, like you know, those guys were just like stopgap players. And if they were bad, you know, it was whatever. They were just going to be there for a short while. And then lo and behold, Eric Cosmer came along. He was your actual first baseman for of the future. Then um, Elsiedis Escobar, they traded for Elsiedis Escobar, and he became the shortstop. So I think the the Royals. Have been not super great on offense. They've been better recently, but the 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 problem behind the offense is not necessarily that they haven't been achieving what they could. The problem is that um, they have a lot of these stopgap type of players. You know, I'm not sure if Franchi Cordero or Ryan McBroom or de- you know definitely not Mike Elfranco. Um You know, probably but Bubba Starling, maybe even Ryan O'Hearn. That's just five guys that I'm kind of like eh, and you. I, th- I feel like a lot of Royals fans would would agree. Like those players aren't necessarily the guys who are going to be the starting first baseman, third baseman, et cetera, for the next Royals playoff team. Those players aren't on the major league team. So, if the if the Royals are bad and if they go back to being not so great, you know, it's it's not really that big of a deal in the long term because those players again aren't on the big league team. What is a bigger problem is players um, like Nicky Lopez and, and Alberto Mondesi. If they're not doing well, you know, that's that's more of a problem because those guys are under contract for longer and those guys could be part of the next Royals playoff team. Um, and so those guys are really the guys to keep an eye on. So the Mondesi's, the Nicky Lopez. Um, honestly, O'Hearn's kind of, you know, you could go either way on him. But um uh, those guys basically need to show that they are a good solid performers for the Royals to keep them around or they themselves could be up for being replaced. Um, So, so it's, it's kind of complicated. And again, it's, they have been done, they have been doing a lot better recently. So it kind of, You know, tempers tempers the offensive criticism when you've got a bunch of guys who are hot right now, which the Royals certainly do. So, um, but but it's interesting to to keep in mind, and it's important to keep in mind that these guys aren't necessarily the long term solutions at any of these positions.
1: No, I think that's a really good point. Like this offense perhaps is playing maybe to the best of its abilities, we could say, Uh, but it's been carried largely by the veterans, the 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 plus twenty eight crowd. Uh, Whit Merrifield, uh, Jorge Soler, Salvador Perez, who's really hit well since uh, returning from Tommy John surgery. The guys that haven't hit so well are the guys we're kind of counting on, Adeberto Um Ryan O'Hearn's been okay. We haven't seen it. You know, it's been very limited sample size, although he hasn't hit for the kind of power you'd probably hope for. Uh, and frankly, there just aren't enough of them. You know, there aren't enough of these young hitters to really say, okay, well, I feel good about this offense going forward. Sean, what's kind of your take on the offense? You know, I know that we, you know, there's some evidence that they were hitting the ball hard, and it looks like they kind of came around on that. Uh, but but how good can this offense be, and how, do, how much does it matter?
3: Yeah, I mean, so to the point of, like, uh, hitting the ball hard, like, that's basically you're just looking for regression, right? But regression is kind of a moving target where, like, if you – I mean, a simple case would be like batting average where it's like – a guy's gonna get—he's gonna hit 400 for a week, then he's gonna hit 150 for a week, then he's gonna hit 380, then he's gonna hit 260. He's—you know—it's gonna—it'll be positive and negative regression. So, yeah, I mean, it's—it's kind of nice that they went from not hitting the ball hard or hitting the ball hard and having bad results to now hitting the ball hard and having good results. But at some point, they're gonna go back to hitting the ball hard and not having good results. So, like, it's—it's it's just kind of a swingy thing. But I do like that. Um, there have been several players now. Of course, small sample size of 17 games um, for many of these guys are the max. Uh, But, I mean, we've got, as I count, including today's stats, one, two, three, four, five, six guys, including McBroom, with a WRC plus above, well, Franco's at 118. So call it 120, basically. So six guys with a 120 or better WRC plus if we round up Franco. um, And he's been a lot better despite it despite his batting average in OBB being only seven points, uh, different, uh, which is not good kids. Uh, but, uh, it is nice that he finally walked last night. So there's been some surprises like that. Uh, especially Perez kind of busting out a little bit, but again, we're, you know, less than a hundred plate appearances, uh, for everybody. And then we've got guys like Mondesi who hasn't quite hit very well. And then Corden, um, Cordero's darling. So it's it's an interesting mix, but I think we still need another 100 plate appearances before we're even close to being like, oh, this is something we can look at going forward to twenty
0: one.
1: I guess what one thing that has kind of surprised me is, is we haven't seen, I was expecting like really, you know, wide uh, variety in like performance because, you know, a small, like you said, a small sample, 16 games, like you'll have some random dude hitting 380 or some guy, some veteran will be hitting 150, but The Royals are their hitters are kind of hitting about what you'd expect. I think the only guy that's really overperforming is maybe Ryan O'Hearn, and perhaps maybe that's actually a true closer to his true talent level. We don't know. And the only guy I'd say that's really underperforming is probably Adam Bartomazzi. I guess maybe Michael Franco you'd say is overperforming since he's not really a one hundred and twenty WRC plus hitter.
3: Yeah. Well, and I don't think that Perez he's at one hundred and thirty six right (laughs) now. I don't quite think he like he's the other guy that I think it's like okay. I mean, he gosh, what was he? He was 89 89 87 91 and now he's at 134 wow that didn't include today so 136 including today so yeah, yeah there's there's definitely some guys that are like oh good to so if you look at like soler like it's like okay good to see soler continuing where he was at last year he's at 157 what was he he was 148 so not that far off like you know even if he came down another 10 points so yeah i mean that was nice to see him kind of come back to that i'm sorry he was at 136 last year my bad um, so he you know even if he comes down a little bit. Um, it's still a continuation of where he was.
1: And it does seem like this team usually struggles initially to begin the year uh, offensively more than anything. And I don't know if some of that has to do with the fact they play in so many cold weather cities to begin the year. And this year they you know obviously it's much warmer with to begin the year, and uh, maybe that's helped the bats get going a little bit. but but it is kind of nice to see the bats uh, kind of get going this week uh, and score some runs. one one thing we haven't really seen them get going um, is the the walks. Uh, you mentioned Michael Franco walked for the first time all year. That's pretty much the MO of this entire franchise. Uh, right now they are currently dead last in the league in walk, uh, rate at, uh, 5.7 uh, percent and, or five, between, excuse me, 5.2%. And that hasn't really come with like, a, you know, high contact rate. They're not like putting the ball in play all the time. They're kind of middle of the pack and strikeout rate. So they're striking out about as much as everyone else, but just not walk, drawing walks Sean, why is this always a, an issue with this organization? I mean, this really goes back even before Dayton Moore, um, but it just seems like this is a franchise that just doesn't want to draw walks. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I guess we just shouldn't be surprised with the with the personnel that they have, but um, it seems yeah. like that's always going to be what holds them back a little bit, right?
3: Yeah, and it's kind of funny because like you mentioned, so like you think like, oh, the Royals are now we hear about like Rhapsody units and like how they're trying to take like, you know, sabermetrics kind of more to heart and it's like, Oh, but they've also got a team wide, whatever, 2% walk rate or something, you know, whatever it's at currently. So it's like, well, yeah, they're doing good at taking that to heart. But then like the central tenet of sabermetrics for batters is on base percentage. And it's, you know, which is typically led by walks. And it's like, Oh, oh, we're not quite there. So, um, I don't know. It's such a weird thing. And it's, at some point maybe if it was like a two or three year thing you'd be like okay it's just total coincidence but like it seems like there's something going on underneath the hood that the the Dayton Moore front office does not seem to care very much about walk rate for better or for worse
1: and, and interestingly like I, and I, I, I last I remember looking at the the Kauffman Stadium was actually a good stadium to draw walks like their opponents That's
3: just yeah i was just trying to find that yes that's a good point Uh, i've got it uh right here park factors for them 2018 the three year of that and it is yeah 99 so basically neutral for walks so Mm -hmm. it's not as if it's like a walk deficient place it's one that's you know like uh dodgers are 94 for whatever reason and you know the rangers are at 103 i bet i bet a lot of that is explained by um uh, foul ball size, but, or you know foul territory. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the Royals are pretty much neutral for walks. So it's not as if they are in a terrible environment for that.
1: You know, Matthew, in the past, they've kind of uh, hand-waved this away saying, you know, well, you, you know, walks were once a market inefficiency, but now everyone is looking for walks and so it's harder for us to get. But I still see teams like, you know, Tampa Bay and Cleveland and Oakland finding guys that can can draw a, a, a walk now and then. Uh, is it is it just... Do you think it's just the Royals can't do it, or there's just not the will to find guys like that?
2: Well, I think that is an interesting, you know, an interesting point. I remember, I don't know if it was Mike Groupman or someone, but he basically, this was a couple of years ago at some conference, um, where there was, he was talking about sabermetrics and statistics and whatnot, but he said something along the lines of, on-base percentage is expensive to get, um, and, and, uh it it doesn't mean that the team thinks it's bad right i mean the team isn't like oh yeah we want guys who aren't good at walking but i think you know to his point to their point um on base percentage is expensive and to pay for that is expensive so if you want to get your money to go further in terms of free agents and whatnot um you look for other things, right? You look for athleticism, you look for speed, you look for defense, which isn't quite as valued as on base percentage, uh, which is valued highly for a very good reason. I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it circles back to the fact that the Royals don't have a lot of internally developed guys with really high you know, skill level on the team right now. So currently they have five guys with a walk rate of under 5%. Um, which is uh, kind of stunning. Uh, and this is among all uh, players with at least 10 plate appearances, so Nick Heath doesn't count in, in here. Um, so Franchi Cordero, Whit Merfield, Alberto Mondesi, Michael Franco, and Salvador Perez. When you think of two of those guys, well, Cordero and Franco, they just got for basically very little to nothing. Um, so it's not like they're internally developed guys. Uh, Witt he hasn't been like a super good, you, you know – his walk rate hasn't been super high but uh he compensates for that with a low strike rate and a high average so you know that's not an issue there um and really so there are Mondesi and Perez and for both of those guys you know the reason why the Royals like them and signed them in the first place is their athleticism and their skill um at their positions so I think it's 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 a two-part thing. It's one on-base percentage is expensive, um, and therefore the Royals are focusing on other attributes that they think they can acquire, uh, such as athleticism. Um, and the the other part is that the Royals just currently don't have a lot of high-talent guys anyway. Um, and I, I think the combination of those two things is why, for a long time, the Royals haven't had very good. Uh, you know, on base percentage. And that's ultimately, that's a really bad thing for the, the long term health of the offense. You know, it's great if you're going, you know, six for 10 or whatever, but if you can't get a hit and you're hitting into all these like bad luck um, hits where maybe the defense is positioned a certain way or you're just hitting the bad luck. Uh, like the Royals have been doing there's no way to compensate for that you can't just draw a walk and continue to get on base it's either hit or nothing and and because there's an element of chance in regards to balls in play that there really isn't with walks the Royals are kind of uh, enslaved to this you know boom or bust result where um, either it's going well or it's not and if they drew more walks and they got if they got on base more they would have a more steady offense which they just don't have
1: yeah, I think you've seen evidence of them trying to at least get guys that can get on base. I think, you know, that was something Jorge Soler showed in his early career, and you know they went down and got him. Brett Phillips, I think, had some evidence of that in his minor league career uh, that he could draw some walks. Ryan O'Hearn, I think, was a guy that could draw some walks in the minors. Uh, we'll have to see if that translates more into major league success. But there aren't enough of those guys, I think. And I think you're right. You know, if there's a, if there's if there's a, you know, a guy that can can draw walks. And a guy that's athletic, and they're both about the same kind of value. I think they'll opt toward the athletic guy, thinking maybe he has higher upside. Maybe they're right about that. Um, whereas I think other organizations, like they'll, they'll, the 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 over, uh, the overarching philosophy is like guys that can be at least patient at the plate aren't gonna uh, just be a total zero when it comes to walks. Um, and so that you see lineups like. Oakland's lineup where you have a bunch of guys and not everyone but but a lot of guys who can draw walks in that lineup or Cleveland's where there's just a lot of patient hitters in that lineup and um so I yeah I think it just comes it kind of comes down to organizational philosophy and um and I don't know the Royals I've always kind of had that philosophy even like I said even before Dayton Moore going back to the days of you know Herc Robinson Alec Baird I think some of that's because of the stadium I think the the rationale has always been well, we need to we need to, be aggressive. We need to put the ball in play. We need to force the issue and make things happen. And walks have always been seen as passive. Um, but if you think about it, you know, if you want a team that runs the base as well, I mean, you need to have guys get on base to run the base as well. Uh, so, you know, it should, certainly that should be part, an element of your offense. And maybe, uh, maybe that is part of the philosophy right now. I think just, right, like 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 kind of like we said that there just aren't enough of those guys right now in the lineup, but uh, hopefully we can, de- we can develop some more of those guys. Uh one guy who can draw a fair amount of walks, uh, but also just be a good hitter overall, is Hunter Dozier, and he returned to the lineup this weekend and had a good results. He had an RBI single his first time up. Uh, with him back in the mix now, um, the outfield, it, isn't, it, it's, it should start to get a little crowded, although they did kind of work, them, work the outfield out a little bit by having some injuries. Uh, Francie Cordero went on the injured list with a, a wrist injury. He shouldn't be out very long, I wouldn't think. Uh, Bubba Starling also out with an injury. He is expected to be back sometime this week. Nick Heath, who got his uh, first major league hit, uh, also went on the injured list, uh, but uh, we expect he'll be back at some point. Uh, But if we do get all these guys back, I mean, it seems like Alex Gordon is going to start in left, Whit Merrifield in center, Hunter Dozier Dozier in right, uh, but that doesn't leave a lot of playing time for the younger guys, Matthew. Uh, How should the Royals be handling guys like Bubba Starling and Brett Phillips and Francie Cordero, who they kind of need to take a look at, but but, uh, are kind of behind some of these other veteran starters?
2: Yeah, it's I I don't really have the answer. Well, I have my preferred answer, um, but they have really kind of backed themselves into this weird position where they have like a lot of outfielders. Right. So you've got let's let's see. So Brett Phillips. Um, Bubba Starling who are kind of two sides of the same coin similar athletic guys that they're trying out uh, they've got Jorge Soler who is granted mostly a DH but if he plays it's going to be in the field um, Merrifield, who they said at the beginning of the year was going to be uh, outfielder mainly but in practice he's split his time rather equally um, so that's four guys right there okay. and then that's not including Hunter Dozier who they also said would start in the outfield a lot Um and then there's Alex Gordon. There's six, and then you have uh, Francie Cordero, who they acquired at seven, and then you have um, who am I missing? Nick Heath, who's who's eight, um, and that's just a lot of guys to try to get playing time when there's three outfield spots and only 28, uh, you know, spots on your roster at all. I think that what the Royals should do is they should be giving more playing time to their unproven guys and less playing time to, say, Alex Gordon. Um, And I think that we're we're starting to see this year Alex Gordon just not quite – just to put it another way, father time catches up with everyone, even someone as ripped as Alex Gordon – And he's just not turning on his fastballs. He's rolling over on pitches and just grounding them weakly to the right side. Um, And, you know, he had a little bit of a mini resurgence the last year or two. Um, But even then, he didn't hit league average. And this is a six-year-old, a 36-year-old outfielder. Um, who's been around for a long time and who never had really like the the most supreme offensive skills. He had a lot of good offensive skills, good eye, you know, pretty good power. But it's you know it father time comes comes for everyone. and i I think that Alex Gordon is on the precipice of starting to be a bigger uh, roadblock to his team, figuring out what the heck they're doing with all these outfielders. Um, then he has a benefit to playing every single day, which he's basically been doing. So I would start by lowering Alex Gordon's playing time. Um, And then personally, I would like to see Brett Phillips um, a lot more. I think he's got the highest upside probably of any of the outfielders. Um, And... Then it just depends on whether or not you want to see Hunter Dozier as a permanent outfielder because he, you know, has a spot right now as kind of a corners guy, you know, first and third and right field. Uh, I do wonder if he will start playing a little bit more third base if Franco cools off a bit and can't get on base and keeps being. Poor defensively over there, so uh, that could work itself out. They've just got so many guys that you want to find them playing time, and that's not even considering the possibility of Kyle Isbell and Khalil Lee. Well, that's nine guys, nine outfielders right there, and so at the moment they are, it's worked itself out with injuries. But if everyone gets healthy, there's going to be a lot of decisions to be made, and I think the Royals might be forced into a situation in which they have to, you know, say to Alex Gordon, "Look, we, we got to play you less."
1: Gordon right now, among all qualified hitters, fourth worst in the league in hard-hit percentage, 22%. Now, it's early, and there's some other guys down there that you expect to bounce back, like Andrew Benintendi, Eddie Rosario. But uh, with his age and, you know, frankly, his performance the last couple years, you know, I don't know if I'd expect Gordon to bounce back that much. Now, look, his defense is still top-notch. We saw it this week. I mean, he had a couple great plays, nice catch on Sunday, throughout out uh, Nick Madrigal last week against the White Sox. But Sean, yeah, there seems like there does come to a point where the Royals need to have a talk with Alex Gordon about taking a, a reduced role. Uh, do you think that's something that they should do? And do you see that happening at all this year?
3: I mean, I think we said when he signed, when he, he reached free agent status, right? They didn't resign him. Yeah. He was a free agent, right? Yep. Uh This off. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think we said when he, when he signed with him, I was, I was thinking he might've, done a one-year extension but when he signed with them I think a lot a lot of us at least I was myself saying like oh I mean we're so happy to have Alex Gordon we love him as a player and everything he's done but it's like you know it wouldn't have been the best it wouldn't have been the worst thing to see him just kind of ride off into the sunset after last season um which he struggled a bit and so it's like man like he is if there's a couple guys if there's like a Mount Rushmore of like Royals 2000s players that like you don't want to see struggle it's Alex Gordon's on there. Cause it's just like, it just stinks to see a guy that we all love like do poorly. So it's tough to be like, Hey, think like, Oh, you need to have a reduced role. Um, but no, I mean, I think he's going to always just be kind of out there. Um, cause obviously they love him defensively. He made a really great defensive play today, um, as well today being Sunday. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think they're going to, I'd be surprised if they did a reduced role, but I think Alex Gordon being how great he is, he would accept that role if they came and said, Hey, you're going to just kind of, I don't know, be our defensive replacement and, um, you know, hit a little bit, but we're going to try the three younger guys out there.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree that I do want to see kind of the younger guys out there. In fairness, Mike McFeeney has been pretty creative in his lineups. Uh, I think he's had like 16 lineups in 17 days, um, but he's gotten, you know, he's created an outfield spot by having Whit Merrifield play at second occasionally, especially uh, to sit Lopez against tough left handed hitters. He's had Dozier play. First base, Uh, he's had uh, you know rotated guys at DH a little bit, so you know you could be a little bit creative about uh, finding guys playing time out there, Uh, and you know I think Gordon still does have value, and it's not like look it's not like he's getting pushed by top 100 prospects, you know at the age of 23. These are 25, 26, 27 year old guys who frankly have are kind of on their last um, their last real chance of being a regular. Uh, But, you know, this is their chance. And I kind of like to see what Brett Phillips and French Cordero, I don't know so much about Bubba Starling. I I feel like the ship has kind of sailed on him. I know that he's changed his swing and and we keep hearing about a new approach, but, um, you know, he's 27. uh, He's not a young buck anymore. But uh, I think there is a little more we can see out of Phillips and and Cordero. I think Cordero especially, to me, he's the guy that has the highest upside. I, I see what you know, I see the upside with Phillips too, but I think Cordero. Yeah. Just because he's been hurt the last two years, we haven't really seen what he can do. You know, it's more like the mystery box. You know, like we just don't know what he what he has. Whereas Phillips, I guess there's some of that because he hasn't done it at the big league level. But but uh, you know, I, at least he's played the minor league baseball and he was fine. You know, he wasn't don't, he wasn't setting the Pacific Coast League on fire or anything.
3: Yeah, I don't mean, and I'm not trying to crap on Phillips here, but I loved when Royals Twitter went nuts when we found out that he did like a swing change and he hit really well in the minors for whatever. It was that like three weeks? Everybody goes, all right, this is it. And then I think he came up and had like a 40 WRC It just was back to normal.
1: He's <laughs> yeah. like, wait, what did he change? Yeah. So
3: anyway, I, again, not to crap out of him. I just was thinking about that. Well,
1: and he could, and I think for a lot of these guys too, it's it's hard to get in a groove when you're kind of playing sporadically like this. And I don't know if it's yeah. something where they just need to say, okay, Brett Phillips, you're a right fielder for the next month. Let's we'll see what you can do. And, and yeah. that would at least give him an extended period of time. But, you know, I don't know. It's, he's, he's gotten some chances, and he hasn't really impressed yet. So
3: We call that Richard Lovelady uh, syndrome, <laughs> uh, where you're not allowed to play more than two games that are, you know, in a row. Yeah.
1: Well, one, speaking of Phillips, one guy, the guy he was traded with, Jorge Lopez, uh, his time with the Royals has come to an end. He was designated for assignment this week. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles claimed him off waivers, uh, if that tells you any kind of state of the Orioles pitching staff right now. Jorge Lopez, uh, you know, he acquired the Mike Moustakas trade back in 2008. He did have that near-perfect game against the Twins, which, you know, I think it was, a, Sean, it was you that tweeted that, you know, was did that really happen, or do we all just collectively yeah. imagine that? Uh, but he did not do well with the Royals. 158 and a third innings with the Royals over uh, two and a half seasons, and his ERA was 6.42. That is actually the sixth worst all-time in club history for anyone with 100 innings or more. Uh, just not a great career with the Royals, Sean, or Sean, what went wrong with Jorge Lopez?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he just isn't, he's just not good. Like, it's the same thing with like Brandon Maurer. It's like, we kept wanting to point to his stuff. Like, man, look how good this guy's stuff is. And you know, I, I don't think Lopez ever had like necessarily blow you away stuff, but you know, he had kind of a light fastball, really kind of good breaking ball with movements. You're like, okay, this guy's got the, the, the base of physical tools and, um, potential production but then it's like yeah I mean it just wasn't good i I, I don't even know, I, I don't know I don't know how how you could put it any other way than it just was not a particularly good pitcher um, and the same thing with Brandon Maurer, he just was not good um so you know I'm I, I I don't ever want to root for a player to do bad um, but it's it's uh, was it? I, it's just baffling how bad he was and it's like okay you know I'm glad that I, I, it was nice that they gave him a shot, but I'm glad to see that he's no longer on the team because at this point, you know, he let him be someone else's kind of problem because um, he just was not good. I, mean, I don't know how else you could put it. He just was terrible, you know?
1: Yeah, he'll be an interesting project. I think if if there was a, a, a pitching staff, a pitching coach who maybe could unlock that potential, I think there is something there. It's just he, he needs, to, I guess, the right environment for it to happen and it wasn't obviously here. Someone
3: mentioned that um, the Orioles are, gosh, who was it? Uh, I can't think of who the Orioles' beat guy is, but someone mentioned that they were going to try to use him as a long, longer reliever. And did he really ever have that role with the Orioles? Obviously, he was a starter. He had some bullpen usage. But did he ever come in that Glenn Sparkman kind of role kind, at all?
1: I think kind of at the end of last year. But I thought he did, Yeah, too. it wasn't like an extended look. I always thought that he his fallback, like a lot of guys, I feel, as, as starters – It's kind of like your short inning reliever who can just ramp it up for an inning. I don't feel like we ever really saw that. I don't know if maybe there's something that in him that they thought that wasn't a possibility. You know, I think kind of what hurt him is that they, they always seemed to need a starting pitcher and they kind of kept putting him back in the rotation. Yeah. You know, kind of like we need you to start even though you're not very good.
3: Well, and as a reliever, uh, at least to the Royals, um, he had a pretty dang good, a nine uh, strikeouts per nine. Now, Per nine stats for relievers are tough, but they're easier to explain than percentage. Um, He had a 9K per nine and a 2.6 walk per nine. Those are pretty good numbers. I think those would be average or better for a reliever.
1: Well, you know, it's been about two years now since the Royals acquired Jorge Lopez in the trade uh, with Brett Phillips from Mike Mustakas, and, you know, Lopez is now gone. Uh, Brett Phillips, I think best case scenario is, is like a fourth outfielder or maybe a platoon guy and, you know, He very well could be out of the organization by the end of the year. So, Matthew, looking back now at the Mike Moustakas trade, how do you assess it? Like, was it a good trade for the Royals to make?
2: I think, well, the Royals were right in trading Moose in the first place. Um, But I think their um, recent trades have been... um, So, what they have done is they have focused on Major League Ready uh, guys Um, And by doing that, they're uh, sort of uh, lowering the ceiling on the type of guy they get. So rather than getting a more risky, uh, younger minor leaguer who has way more upside, what they have been doing, and this has been true, you know, going back as far as the Wade Davis trade, right? So they traded Wade Davis for, for his Soler, now that's worked out for them, but that's an example of... Uh, you know, they traded a guy for someone who at the time was really flawed. And yeah, he was majorly ready, but they could have traded Wade Davis for, you know, maybe a, a blue chip prospect who um, would have done better. And uh, this is just sort of a, a pattern that Dayton Moore has done where he has traded um, uh, Kelvin Herrera, I think was was another one where, um, you know, rather than trading Kelvin for, you um, you know minor league players with upside he opted to trade for guys who were ready to contribute quote-unquote now which um those types of players that are available in those deals mean that those players are flawed or unproven or just have a lower ceiling in general and sometimes it works out like Jorge Soler as it does with every trade um but I think that it's just kind of an example of of the royals kind of punting on upside um in exchange for uh, just some some players who can contribute now and that's not always the best move um but i i do think that Brett Phillips um you know has has a future as a royal um and i think that because like if you look at his defensive numbers he's like pretty across the board ever since he he has, you know played in the major leagues and with his amount of uh, sample size, um, he is one of the best outfielders in baseball, and that's not really an exaggeration. He's extremely fast and he has a ridiculous arm. Um, that's he's very accurate. So he he really truly is one of the best outfielders in baseball, um, and that's not really something that we've seen from Bubba Starling so far, right? I mean like Bubba Starling is an example of someone who you're like oh yeah they're a great fielder, but he hasn't really shown it so much in the major leagues uh, he's sort of I don't know whether or not that's because of uh, his reputation or whatnot. but uh, Brett Phillips has the numbers to back it up and I think that for a defender that's that good the offensive uh, level that he has to be at in order to contribute and stay on a team is, is lower so I think that you know Brett Phillips could kind of be like a Gerard Dyson type of player for the Royals um, if they let him do that um, and We'll we'll see. I mean, he's he's gotten a little bit more playing time lately, but he's he's a guy who draws a walk. He's got a career 9.4% walk rate, which is really good um, for a guy like him. He's got a little bit of pop career 141 ISO. Uh, that's isolated power. Um, you know, that's not bad. His his average is kind of low, um, but uh, you know, he has 2.2 wins above replacement per fan graphs in 129 games, which is you know really good. That's like that's Gerard Dyson numbers where. He is getting the uh, you know value out of his speed and his defense, um, and while while he doesn't have Dyson's stolen base numbers, you know he does have 12 stolen bases, um, which is uh, pretty good. And he has been caught stealing once, so that's that's a really solid solid number. So I do think that there's a there's a um, future for Phillips. Um, and if if you allow me to get on uh, Jorge Lopez uh, soapbox for 30 seconds, will you allow me to do this? Uh, go ahead. Okay, so, so this is my my Jorge Lopez soapbox. Jorge Lopez has never really been good in the minor leagues. Like, if you look at his ERA in uh, rookie ball, his ERA was four three four. In A ball, his ERA was five two three. In high A, it was four five eight. And in two seasons in AAA, it was six three one. Now, those really are aren't very good numbers, and this sort of speaks to something that I think is relevant to Brady Singer. Um, In that people, um, you know, maybe perhaps rightfully say that Brady Singer doesn't have the raw stuff that he should, that he doesn't have a change up. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, a pitcher's job is to pitch well and get outs. And no matter how good your raw stuff is, you know, Brandon Maurer, Jorge Lopez, there are certain factors at play that you may not be able to overcome, you know, whether or not you're leaving, you know, giant um, cookies in the middle of the plate or whatever. Um some players just can't capitalize on the pitches that they have, and other players do much better with the pitches that they have than they really should. And I think that Jorge Lopez is a really great example of that.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll see if if Brett Phillips can kind of salvage a trade, but um I think in a way that the trade the Mike Mustakas trade makes me think about how some people think that the Royals should have kind of traded the core like a year before they did. And the way that the way Davis and Mike Mustaka's trades went down kinda of make me think, you know what, that probably wouldn't have helped the rebuild that much if they had traded Hosmer and Kane and, and and maybe uh you know, Kelvin Herrera earlier because the turn the returns ended up not being not that great for those guys. And and like you said, you know, maybe it's their approach of taking guys that are major league ready, uh, and not taking higher upside guys that are a little bit further away. And you talk about Jorge Soler, you know, even though that kind of worked out and that he's a good player, he's going to be gone after 2021, most likely, unless they sign him to another deal. And, that you know, so he's not going to really even be around when the kind of, core of this rebuild, and the, you know, the, the pitchers and maybe Bobby Wood Jr. and some of these other guys are up to the big league team. So I don't know if that he really fit into what they were trying to do with the rebuild anyway. So, um, you know, all it's all hindsight at this point. But, you know, I tend to agree that the the Mike Moustakas trade the process was good the results just, just just didn't pan out and some of that's just because Mike Moustakas you know they're trading two months of a, of a guy that was a home run hitter that was, that was his best asset in an era in which home runs were, were frankly rather cheap so um, you know it was a good gamble I think getting a guy that had some stuff and a guy that had some offensive ability and some great defense in the minors and we'll see if Phillips uh, pans out But uh, but the Jorge Lopez chapter unfortunately will We'll end with uh, with not 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 great results, but we'll always have that near perfect game at least. So, let's wrap up with our Royals review reviews. And Sean, what do you have for us tonight? Um,
3: I watched uh, the Rental. Um, over the well, yesterday actually last night. Um, Dave Franco, who is either known as James Franco's little brother or the guy that you've seen in random movies throughout the years, super bad. Uh. Whatever it is, Dave and whatever, and he, like all the random movies he's been in, and obviously uh, The Room, whatever the James Franco one was called for The Room, where he remade it. Um, the uh, it's about a, a uh, two couples that rent a rental place in the far out. I think it's in San Francisco, um, and you know, basically they're being spied on the whole time. Um, really, really, actually, really good film. I thought um, there's a really good. I wouldn't call it a plot twist, but something happens that you don't necessarily expect to happen or it's without giving it away there's a really really good last 30 minutes and the way that the movie ends uh or what you don't learn i guess i should say is really really great and it's uh it's pretty freaking good it's it was his directorial debut debut and um yeah i think it's a really good watch and it's got allison brie which is dave franco's wife isn't it and uh it's really good good suspense i put it as far as wins above replacement, I, I would say it's at least a three-war movie right there. Considering that, and know thrillers aren't usually known for, uh, you know, being great Oscar winners. It was it was pretty good, so worth a watch. I gave it a three and a half out of five popcorn tubs on my on my, my grading scale.
1: Uh, I am glad I did not watch The Rental before I actually went out and <laughs> rented a vacation home <laughs> yeah. last week. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I can watch that now uh, since yeah. I'm, I'm done with my vacation. So The Rental. So check that out. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for us this week?
2: So um, I finished uh, the video game uh, The Last of Us Part II, uh last week. Um, and I think I would sum it up uh, in, in one sentence pretty easily. The Last of Us Part Two is a great game that I would not recommend to anyone. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is it, it tells a really, it, it, it is very good at telling its story. Um, its gameplay is really good. It's really polished. It's, it's beautiful. Um, it's it's uh, got a lot of things going for it. And um, you know, when you zoom out, like it's, it's a really quite a good game. It's it maybe even a great game, an excellent game. But the the problem with it is that, if and you know this if you've ever played the first Last of Us. I won't spoil anything. But the first Last of Us is very brutal. Whole bunches of characters do not mm, have a great time. Let's just put it that way. And it's just really brutal. And the second one is basically an exercise in just misery and pain. And it it tells a really great story in as much as it's really good at telling the story but the story that it tells is just so depressing and so dark that i can't recommend that anybody actually go play it because it's there's just no point like i could beat myself with a hammer a couple times and you know that that would be that would get the same like emotional result from it it's just it's just a giant slog and i almost quit halfway through and i and I'm not entirely certain that I should have uh, quit half, halfway, sh- halfway through. I'm not sure if that was the the wrong decision to keep going. So it's a, it's a very good game that I don't really think that you should feel that you should play unless you are totally okay with going through a very painful and emotionally draining slog for 30 hours um, and then getting to the end without a single moment of catharsis. <laughs> That's
1: a, one of the more interesting recommendations I've, I've heard. and I, wow. I, And I've heard that from a lot of people, actually
3: and they're making a they're making a is it Hulu or someone's making a TV show now out of TV, TV show
2: I think it you know I think a TV show works for it definitely more so than the game mm-hmm. one of the problems with the last of us part 2 is that the developers are like they're trying to make you feel bad about things that they force you to do in the game right so there's dogs and if you kill the dog like their owner it's really like Distress that you killed the dog. Well, like, if I don't kill the dog, the dog's going to kill me, and then I'm going to die, and the game's going to be over. Like, don't try to make this a whole, like, uh-huh. off-finger-wagging. Oh, you did what we told you to do. Like, no. I So I, I think a TV show um, would work much better for it.
3: Yeah, and without giving away, I, I think people know by now, at least, or anybody that cares, the the, well, all right, I won't give it away. The unexpected character... Death, I guess, or you don't you don't play as the character you expect to be playing in. Correct?
2: Uh, yeah, I Wait, would I would say so.
3: You think that's correct, or you do play as a character you expect to be playing?
2: Well, I mean, you you play as as the main character you expect, but I think I would agree with you that there is a death that comes very unexpectedly. Yeah.
3: Okay. Okay. I used to get like that was really big. I remember when that came out. I mean, because I saw all these reviews are like this game is terrible because of this. It's like it's just one character. They clearly never played Metal Gear Solid 2 because that's got the all-time biggest character swap ever. Uh, and so I was thinking, like, man, you know, it's it's not quite as bad as they make it out to be, it sounds like.
1: Well, for my review this week... Um... I was reading an article at MLB.com about, it's called The Oldest League You've Never Heard Of. It's about the George Donnelly Sunset League Baseball League in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. They play in an old stadium that's well over a century old. Uh, some people think it may have originally been built in the 1890s. Uh, but it's, it's like a sandlot league. It's got some, some player college guys home for the summer that weren't good enough to play in like the Cape Cod or Northwoods League or anything like that. It's got some former players, uh, former minor league players. It's got some just guys that love playing baseball. So it's like a million miles away from the major leagues, but it's just this kind of neat, little uh baseball league that plays uh, actually my my former college roommate plays in a similar league like this in the St Louis area where there's just guys that just love playing baseball um and you know it's a high quality high quality like for us like it's like for amateurs it's high quality baseball um but you know certainly a million miles away from from like even the minor leagues uh and, and I've also been reading I was also been reading um, uh the the only rules that has to work by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, which is about the Sonoma Stompers and how they got to, to run that team. That's a an independent league team that it's at least a professional and the, the players get paid, but they get paid so little money that it's it's hardly professional at all. And and those, those two uh, the, the article and book that I read this this week um it just kind of reminded me how great independent baseball is and how how great like lower levels of baseball is. Not necessarily in the quality of play, but just like the fact that there are people out there that love baseball that much that they're kind of willing to uh, play, you know, 12 12 phases away from the big leagues, or even further than that, uh, 12 steps away from the big leagues. Uh, You know, people say football is the most popular sport in America, and it is, uh, but it's really big-time football. It's the NFL. It's like big-time programs. You know, there is no minor league football, and any attempt at it has usually failed. Um, A lot of small college football teams don't draw very well, but baseball seems to draw, you know, no matter if it's a big league team or a minor league team or even college baseball team. Yeah, they don't all draw draw that well sometimes, but people are still willing to go out and see you know, a ball game, even if it's players they've never heard of and players that, that aren't anywhere near major league quality. Um, but but I think that does kind of show how popular baseball as a sport is. Uh, and so I, I know a lot of these teams aren't playing this summer, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are probably going to go under, out of business because of this year. But Hopefully next year we can get baseball back next summer, and uh, if they if we do and if fans can attend games, I, I would highly urge you to go out and check out a, a minor league game or an independent league game, uh, like the T-Bones out in KCK, or a college baseball game or one of these low-level sandlot games, because um, I think you know you're talking about guys who truly are playing for the love of the game, uh, not because they're expecting to make millions of dollars. And to me, that's kind of kind of the purest like. Uh, purest form of the game. So uh, definitely check out amateur baseball and, and low, low level uh, minor league baseball when you get the chance. So that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks again for TJ Gorsegner at Twinkie Town for being on and telling us about the Minnesota Twins. And thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show. And many thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next week.